Okay, so I've got a little piece this morning I want to read. This is from Thomas Traeger of Yale, and uh, I don't know, it gets my imagination going, and I hope it gets yours going. I hope you can put yourself in this story, which he calls overhearing love's music in a brutal world. You are on a trip. You have just settled into a motor lodge for the night. The sign out front reads, free cable television in every room. The people next door have already turned on their TV. The words of the movie that they are watching are only vaguely intelligible. But you can tell from the soundtrack, it is a picture of romance and love. Something to pull on the heartstrings. You switch on your TV to the news channel. There is no sound. You look at the screen anyway, hoping that once the TV warms up, the sound will come on. Soldiers with automatic rifles are leading four handcuffed men into a bare room with a plain table and microphone. From the TV set on the other side of the wall, you hear a surge of romantic music and the voices of actors speaking passionately to each other. You catch bits and phrases I promise you, no more shall we but only love. The voices fade, and all you hear is misty music. Meanwhile, the handcuffed prisoners and the guards disappear from your silent screen. You see the newscaster followed by the next on-the-scene report. Seagulls and fish are covered with sticky black oil. People in raincoats are raking and shoveling the beach, which is also covered with the same viscous sludge. Dun, dun, da, dun. Dun, dun, da, dun. You distinctly hear the sound of Mendelssohn's wedding march. The movie in the next room must be ending. The trumpets are making their famous triumphal call. Dun, dun, da, dun. Dun, dun, da, dun. While you watch a shore worker pick up a large dead bird covered with oil. You imagine the grand wedding procession on the other TV, the bride in radiant white, the groom smiling. The newscast images on your TV set insist on one reality, while the music coming through the wall awakens a different scene. You hear someone in the next room click off the TV. You watch in silence the face of the news announcer mouthing words that you cannot hear. And you decide the sound is never going to come on, so you turn off the set and get ready for bed. But you find a strange thing happening in your mind. Usually when you click off the TV, the images fade from consciousness. Then you begin to think about the day that is past and what faces you tomorrow, but things are different tonight. The images of the handcuffed people and the oil-covered creatures do not fade from your mind. Instead, they are held there by the love music that keeps replaying itself in your head. The music that you thought was a sentimental intrusion upon the real world. It's done something that the broadcast words could never have accomplished. 
the music has amplified the dissonance between the brutality of the world and the hopes of the human heart for a life of tenderness, fidelity, and love. Even if the movie was a Hollywood concoction, there is no denying those yearnings of the heart that it stirred. If you had heard the love music entirely on its own, if you had watched the news broadcast entirely on its own, the effect would have been different. Then you would have entered into one reality or the other. You would have accepted each on its own terms. But now it is the juxtaposition of the two worlds that is haunting your imagination. The contrast between the news images and the soundtrack has broken the grip that the talk of broadcasters usually holds upon you. Instead of concluding, that's the way the world is, you find yourself thinking, the world does not have to be that way. The heart knows other possibilities. As you go to bed, the music continues to echo in your memory. You find yourself praying for those handcuffed people whose names you did not even hear and for those fish and birds suffocated in oil. As disciples, we live in two realities. We live in two worlds. We live in the in-between We see what everyone else sees. We see the tension. We see the brutality. We see the sinfulness. But we hear a different melody being played. By faith, a different world is emerging, a world where Christ is king, a world where the values of the kingdom hold sway. We are in the world, but not of the world. Citizens of the USA, but truly citizens of something bigger, something greater the kingdom of heaven. We are a blood-bought people. We belong to that kingdom where Christ the King is on the throne. And we live in the in-between. And I feel, I don't know about you, this tension. And it's an ancient tension of God's people. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 120, verse 7, I search for peace, but when I speak of peace, they want war. I'm just trying to be God's child. I'm just trying to make things better. I'm just trying to help people get along. But at work, or in my home, or with my group of friends, or in the HOA, it's like everybody just wants to fight. And it would be an easy thing, a tempting thing, to check out. That's the way the world is. It's the way the world's always going to be. What difference can I make? I'll just take care of myself, I'll take care of my people, and just, just mark time until either I go to be with Jesus or He comes to be with us. To just check out. But Jesus calls His people to be peacemakers. He calls us to marshal our time and our energy, our resources, to enter into this brokenness and to bring His shalom And he said in that famous Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Abigail. Talked about her last week. Abigail. In a world of Avengers, she was Wonder Woman. We talked about this woman who got involved in this situation that was very complex. Emotions had spiraled out of hand, and she finds herself in a place where these two alpha males are about to do battle. Her husband, Nabal, and David are about to engage in a fight to the death, and she can see it. The disaster that is about to befall her household. And I'm not going to get into the details of their dispute. We talked about all of that last week in 1 Samuel chapter 25. But here's what she was up against. She was up against David, who has been so offended, so verbally abused by her husband Nabal, that David has ordered 400 of his men to strap on their swords. They're going to go to her house, to Abigail's house, and they're going to kill every male. Every male member of the family, every male member of the staff, this is going to be a massacre. And her hot-headed husband, in many respects, has brought this upon himself and upon the home. And so without consulting her husband, Abigail sets off quickly. She sprints in the direction of David in order to try to negotiate a peaceful settlement. We pick up the story in 1 Samuel 25, verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the young men that you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you, I love her optimism, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And so here's a present that I, your servant, have brought you and your young men, please, Forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely repay you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles. And you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of your Lord, your God, secure in His treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies disappear like, like stones Shot from a sling. When the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. David was beside himself with anger going into this conversation, so angry. He had lost himself in his emotions. And Abigail, as he could only hear the heavy metal rhythm of vengeance, she allowed him to hear a different tune. David's response, starting in verse 20, or 32. 
David replied to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. For I swear by God, the Lord, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you, important words there, Abigail, if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would be alive tomorrow morning. And then David accepted her present and told her, return home in peace. I have heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. Bloodshed prevented. Peace and harmony restored. And she goes back home relieved. And there's a full tilt party going on at her house. I mean, the music is blaring, and there's food being served, and there's laughter and conversation, and there's drink, lots of drink. Her husband, Nabal, is lit. The guy is plastered. She's like, I need to tell him everything that just happened, but I can't tell him when he's drunk. Got to wait till he sobers up. So the next morning... 1 Samuel 25, 37, 38. In the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him what had happened. This was quite a shocker. Because as a result, he had a stroke. And he lay paralyzed on his bed like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck him and he died. If I believed in karma... I would say, karma, bro. That's not the end of the story. David hears that her husband has passed away. David sends someone to make an offer to her. Why don't you come be David's wife? And she accepts. And they ride off together as husband and wife. You talk about a surprise ending, really. Be easy to get lost in the details of the story. Fascinating details there. Shocking twists and turns. But what I want to do, and I think what the Spirit wants to do, is to lead us to to think about what we learn here about being a peacemaker. What does it look like? Just kind of the basic bones of the thing. And and for starters, you look at Abigail, it it means that we are to be grounded. Because oftentimes when you are the peacemaker, other people have lost their heads. To some extent or another, they are off the rails in bitterness. They've been betrayed. They've been lied to. They're hurt. They've been stung. And the peacemaker must be grounded. In other words, they understand the cost of getting involved. Abigail understood that. She understood that. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. And if you would read this with me, Paul says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So it says, make every... Yeah. Roll up your sleeves. Do the work. There's a cost. And for Abigail, it wasn't just an economic cost of all those gifts that she took to David and his men. There was a much greater cost for starters. It was the cost or the risk of stepping out and literally putting her life in front of an angry mob. 
that cost. She didn't know for sure how that thing was going to turn out. And for Abigail, if you think a little bit about the story, there was another cost. Because if her mission was successful, okay, if she was successful, if Nabal was spared, then she was consigning herself to more years of marriage to this guy. Sentencing herself to, I mean, we know as it turned out, that's not the way it worked out, but she had to be thinking, if this is successful, this unhappy marriage continues. So peacemakers get it. They're grounded. They see the situation. They're not naive. They understand that that there's a cost to getting involved. And many times when they get involved, they're not seeing their friends or their family members at their best. People involved in a conflict are not going to necessarily be rational. And they don't know for sure how things are going to turn out. And so peacemakers like Abigail are grounded. They're called to do good. But they have some sense of what it means to make every effort. They're also generous. So number two there is is be generous. Peacemakers serve both sides with impartiality. Both sides. Abigail was working on behalf of Nabal. And she was working on behalf of David. She sought a fair solution to everyone concerned. Like Paul, Abigail could say, 1 Corinthians 10.33, I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. I'm thinking about the outcome for all of these people made in the image of God. What would be best for her? What would be best for him? Number three, be goal-centered. Know what you are trying to accomplish. And with peacemakers, that goal is one word. It is reconciliation. Peacemakers seek to bring reconciliation. You know, Paul tells disciples of Christ. He tells us, 2 Corinthians 5.19, He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's our message. That's our ministry. And number four, be God-centered. That's the thing that we can bring into the situation as believers that no one else can. We can bring the presence of God in the midst of this unpleasant situation. Be God-centered. Peacemakers embrace this higher calling that they have by bringing God into their conflict. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. He says, We are therefore... Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Would you read that with me? We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Higher calling. Not just looking out for number one. I am Christ's ambassador. He wants to make an appeal through me. Half a dozen times as she's speaking to David, I don't know if you notice this, but over and over she comes back to the Lord. Over and over she's bringing God. David has lost himself. Doesn't know who he is in this moment. Certainly doesn't know whose he is. 
has forgotten the calling, the mission that God has put on his life. And Abigail keeps bringing him back to that. Keeps bringing the Lord into the middle of that situation. Just listen, I, I jotted some of these phrases down. In verse 26, she tells David, The Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance. Verse 28, The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, David. She tells him in verse 28, David, you are fighting the Lord's battles. In other words, this ain't one of those. You're called to something big. You're called to bigger battles, bro. Verse 29, your life, David, is safe in the care of the Lord. Verse 31, when the Lord has done all he promised, he's going to make you leader of Israel. Verse 31, she says, when the Lord has done all of these great things for you, God's got great things for you, David. Not this petty business that you've gotten caught up in. So when we talk about bringing God in the conflict and, and this calling that we have as Christ's ambassadors, it's not like I enter into the situation, it's like, oh, you guys, you're so immature and petty and childish. I, however, am Christ's ambassador, yeah? No, it's not like that. By being Christ's ambassadors, we help people rise above and become, become who they were called to be, children of God. We help them see beyond the anger that's in front of them. And so if you're a disciple, you've been called to be a peacemaker. And maybe it's in a situation where you find yourself at odds with somebody else. Maybe you're called to be a peacemaker in a situation where someone you care about is at odds with somebody else. And like Abigail, we choose to hear a different melody and be ambassadors for Christ in a hostile world. We believers straddle two worlds. We're here, but we belong to another. As Traeger wrote, our hearts know other possibilities. If you're not a believer, there's something you're going to have to come to terms with. There's something you're going to have to reckon with. It's the gospel. You just can't ignore it. Because the gospel story is out there. That the Son of God left heaven, came to earth, put on flesh for you. That you were at odds with God, holy, just, the one who gave you life, the one who created you. You were at odds with God, and Jesus came to make things right. And you talk about a cost? At the center of this is the cross, of this reconciliation. And Paul reminds Christians about their story, about who they were, and about who they are because of Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 Verses 21 and 22, he says, Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death 
to present you holy in his sight. Oh, this is good. Holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Paul tells those Christians, now, because of what Jesus did, Satan has no ammunition to use against you. There are no accusations against you that God the Father will hear because you have been clothed with Christ. Your record is clean, without blemish. You are holy. You wear the holiness of Christ. Christ came to reconcile us to God and, yes, to each other. So this morning... Maybe you just need prayers. Maybe you need to bring God into your situation. Or you've got some friends, and you want to bring God into that situation. And we just want to have time where you can just get together with somebody, put your arm around somebody, or ask if you can pray for them, or ask if they could pray for you, or come down and pray with me, or one of our shepherds. Bring that before the Lord today. Or maybe it's time to cross the line of faith and say, Jesus, I need you to be my peacemaker. I need a reconciler. I need a savior. And be baptized in the name of Christ. And begin to walk in that new identity, hearing a different melody. You can do that today. Let's stand together and respond.